0: I do invite you to open your Bibles to the Old Testament, the passage we're in is right about in the middle of your Bible, if you have a paper Bible, Ecclesiastes chapter 4. If you're visiting with us or regular attendee, let me just remind you, every Sunday our goal is to open God's book and let the Lord speak through His infallible inspired Word. The Bible is the only written revelation that we have from God, that's it. Its words are authoritative, life-giving because it is God-breathed. All other religious books are religious forgeries and inspired by demons. Only the Bible is the inspired Word of God. Every word is true, every word is pure, every word is without error. It's all contained in 66 books, 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New. No one is to take anything away from what God has written, and no one is to add to anything God has written, or the plagues of Scripture, it is said, will be added unto them. Whenever we open this book, it is our responsibility to welcome what is written, to interpret it accurately, to repent accordingly, to read it prayerfully study it carefully, meditate on it diligently, submit to its authority, rejoice in what it promises, and seek to obey its commands. That is why we give a large chunk of our worship service to the exposition of the Word of God, no matter who is preaching. That is why we do this. With that, Ecclesiastes chapter 4. We are currently in a series in this book called Finding Life's Purpose. We've learned that what makes Ecclesiastes kind of interesting and cool, so unique, is that it's a journal, it's a diary, it's a candid journal, an honest journal of someone who is a pleasure seeker, but not just anybody, a very disappointed, hedonist, very disillusioned pleasure seeker. Written by someone called the preacher, quelleth in Hebrew, probably Solomon, good reason to believe that for a number of reasons, someone who chased earthly pleasures for a long time, Only to discover that the more he binged on pleasure, even good ones, not everything mentioned, in fact, most of the things mentioned here aren't necessarily sinful pleasures, but the more he binged on just pleasure, things under the sun, the more miserable he became. A lot of us know that path, don't we? Some of us are on that path right now, thinking that things around us, that will provide ultimate satisfaction and joy. A little bit like uh, the song that U2 wrote a number of years ago and called The Wanderer. It was actually performed by Johnny Cash. and was based on Ecclesiastes, U2's song, The Wanderer. One of the lines, I went out there in search of meaning to taste and to touch and to feel as much as a man can before he repents. Based off Ecclesiastes. This weekend we are studying chapter 4. And the first part of chapter 5, remember verse divisions and chapter divisions were not added until hundreds of years later after the Bible was written. Sometimes they're helpful, sometimes they are not. Really this section hangs together as one section with a common theme, chapter 4 verse 1 to chapter 5 verse 7. And let me just be upfront about this section. This is on insanity under the sun, the insanity of life under the sun. And ladies and gentlemen, young people, this is targeted young people, we're told several times in the book, this is a dark section of Ecclesiastes. Feels like it was written by Friedrich Nietzsche or Albert Camus or Jean-Paul Sartre or Martin Buber, one of the existentialists. As you read it on the surface level, it feels grim and depressed. There's a reason for that. There's no attempt to sugarcoat life in this section. Solomon is talking about how bleak, how dangerous, unpredictable, and chaotic and miserable life can become when we ignore God's wisdom, which leads Solomon to his robust summons in chapter 5, verse 7, that we will get to at the end, therefore, fear God. That's the answer. Spoiler alert, but that's the answer. So with that, Solomon is looking two directions. Let us go to the text. We want to keep our finger in the text. We want to keep looking at the text and saying, what's the text say? Solomon is looking two directions as we come to this passage. He's viewing life under the sun. And then at the end, he's going to tell us about finding hope above the sun. This this is really important stuff, and I hope you're tracking and listening. All right. First of all, viewing life under the sun, eight. A key to understanding and interpreting, chapter 4, verse 1 down to 5, verse 6, is the phrase under the sun. It occurs four times in chapter 4. It occurs over 25 times in the book as a whole, under the sun. And if you do Bible study or know anything about interpretation or hermeneutics, one of the things you're looking for is repeated phrases and repeated words. Those are signals as to an author's intent. And since this was inspired by the Holy Spirit, even more so. So a key phrase here is under the sun, and we've learned that when Solomon uses that phrase, it shows up, first of all, in chapter 1, but here in chapter 4, four more times. The key is this, like, what does he mean? Well, one of the things he's referring to is that in, when he uses the phrase is looking for meaning in life, which everyone is doing at one level, under the sun means looking for meaning in life. Under the sun, and things under the sun, things around us, even good things, even good things. Looking for ultimate meaning in life, looking at good things, while leaving God out of the picture. That's the key. Looking to the particulars, as Francis Schaeffer would call the visible things around us. Looking to that for ultimate joy, ultimate satisfaction, ultimate hope but leaving God out of the picture. That is one of the key things Solomon means by that phrase repeated so many times under the sun. Well, what's the problem with reaching for things around us for ultimate meaning? And the answer to that is another Hebrew word that shows up 38 times in the book, and it's the word Hevel in Hebrew. And the word Hevel in Hebrew, some of us know and we've learned can be translated a number of different ways. Interesting, Hebrew has a broader semantic range to its words than Greek does or even English. Hebrew has a broad range. So, the word hevel occurs 60 or 70 times in the Hebrew Bible as a whole, often comes up in Psalms, and it translates a number of ways, Uh, smoke, puff, mist, vapor, temporary, fleeting. I mean, you get the picture. Uh, it's there for a moment gone. What looks like you could grab it, it, you can't. That's the problem. That's the problem with looking to the things around you, even good things, grabbing onto them and hope that they give some kind of ultimate lasting satisfaction. You're going to realize you're grabbing at smoke, you're grabbing at mist, and there's nothing there, ultimately. That's the problem with trying to do that. Hence, looking at life under the sun, trying to find meaning there, ultimately is going to lead to failure. Now, in chapters 1 to 3, we've learned that Solomon was chasing pleasure. He went on a we call it the pleasure safari, a great pleasure experiment, where he tried all kinds of things, only to realize that binging on all that stuff just led him to misery. Now in chapters 4 to 5, he switches a little bit and he's pausing to look around his world and instead of really focusing on what he's doing and his conclusions, he's starting to look out. You'll see the verb, I saw, appears a number of times in chapter 4. So he's telling us now he's really taking his eyes off himself and he's starting to look at the world around him to see what he observes. And as any of us know, especially in our day of 24-hour news coverage, to just binge on watching the news, one of the reasons I don't favor it, it's depressing. Right? Doesn't matter what network you're watching. You just watch all of the calamity going on around. It becomes toxic if you take it in very large doses. I would not encourage you, to just binge on watching Fox News or CNN or MSNBC or anything for that matter. It's not healthy spiritually. Not healthy. And Solomon is a living example of it right here. As you read through his observations, again, you'll see this verb, I saw, I saw, I saw. So the bottom line is the more he viewed what was going on around him, the more he sunk into even greater despair than he had been in the first few chapters. And here's the point. Watching life around us will only lead to existential depression and despair if we leave God out of the picture. That's the key. Just watching life around us and trying to interpret all the complexity of everything that's taking place around us, the good, the bad, and the ugly, if we leave God out of the picture and just focus on that, it is going to lead to a dark night of the soul, dark night of the soul, dark decade of the soul, dark life of the soul if we leave God out of the picture. Few have captured this better as I was working on this this week. In fact, I had the sermon almost done, and a quote came to mind from a very well-known philosopher. Some of you may know the name, some of you may not. Bertrand Russell. Bertrand Russell uh, was a brilliant British philosopher who was an atheist. Now, you may say, well, how can he be brilliant if you're an atheist? The word fool in the Bible does not refer to intellect, and it does not refer to your IQ. It refers to leaving God out of the picture and not paying attention to God. So you can be brilliant in the world's term, have a lot of horsepower intellectually. Bertrand Russell was one of those. He was British. He taught at the University of Cambridge. He was a legend in mathematics, logic, and philosophy, wrote a number of interesting books, and even a number of interesting math uh, theses. One of his biggest ones was Principia Mathematica, he wrote with Alfred North Whitehead from Harvard. Back in 1903, Bertrand Russell wrote a little essay. that became actually one of his most famous essays next to his small book, Why I Am Not a Christian. That's a fascinating book to read. But in this little essay, Bertrand Russell, who was a militant atheist, he did not believe in God, The essay was entitled, A Free Man's Worship, and this quote came to mind as I was studying all this this week about the bleakness of just looking around us and the despair it will lead to if I don't take God into it, if I don't remember there's a God above all this. Here's what Bertrand Russell says at one point in the essay. He he captures so well Solomon's perspective. So this is Bertrand Russell speaking for himself, his worldview. The life of man is a long, lonely march through the night, surrounded by invisible foes, tortured by weariness and pain. We move on towards a goal which few can hope to reach and none can tarry long. One by one, our comrades vanish from sight, seized by omnipotent death. Let us remember that they are fellow sufferers in the same darkness, actors in the same tragedy as ourselves, close quote. Well, not that cheery? But that's where you end up. That's the point. When you just take into account the particulars around you, those things you can see, handle, and touch, even if they're good things, and make no reference to the God above the sun, That is where you will end up. It's where Bertrand Russell ended up. It's where Ernest Hemingway ended up. It's where Albert Camus ended up. And it's where Solomon ended up. So let's notice what Solomon saw. He tells us very clearly, his eyes are now off himself and on others as he's looking around. First thing he saw was oppression. Oppression. Again, I looked and saw, there's our verb, all the oppression that was taking place Under the sun, there's our phrase, I saw the tears of the oppressed, they have no comforter. Power was on the side of their oppressors and they have no comforter. And I declared that the dead who had already died are happier than the living who are still alive, but better than both is the one who has never been born, who has not seen the evil that is done under the sun. If you know your Bible, you know that the Old Testament prophets thundered against oppression. So did Jesus. Here's just a couple verses from the prophets, Exodus 23.9, you shall not oppress a stranger since you were strangers in the land of Egypt. Or Deuteronomy 24.14, you shall not oppress a hired hand who is poor and needy, a good word to those who are employers and managers and supervisors about the importance of shepherding and taking care of those under our jurisdiction. And yet that is exactly the opposite of how the world thinks, the world is very clear about oppression and abuse and taking advantage whenever we can. Classic example of this, Michael Korda, some of you may know the names, he was editor-in-chief for Simon & Schuster for a number of years. And he wrote a number of best, in fact, I just read one of his books on the history of uh, the Hungarian Revolution that was fascinating. He went, actually went over there as a young man in November of 1956 to interview people as the Soviets were crushing the uprising of the Hungarian people in Budapest, and it's a great book. He wrote a, couple other, a number of other books. One of them was called Success. One of them was called Power. How's that for short, pithy phrases? In the uh, book he wrote called Power, his subtitle was this, How to Get Control of Everyone Around You. That's his subtitle. That's, by the way, an illusion. If you're a parent or a grandparent, you know that really quick. In his book, Success, he wrote this, and I'm not making this stuff up. It's okay to be greedy. It's okay to be ambitious. It's okay to look out for number one. It's okay to recognize that honesty is not always the best policy, provided you don't go around saying so. Close quote. That's the philosophy of the world. It may be some of your philosophies. I hope not. But By the way, Corda's son, Chris Korda, I looked up, heads up the bizarre, perverted, satanic church of euthanasia. It shows you where this kind of philosophy leads. It's sadistic and demonic. Next thing that Solomon saw was envy. So he saw oppression, opposite of what God says. Envy, secondly, verses 4 to 6. And I saw all the toil and all the achievement spring from one person's envy of another. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Next thing he saw was greed. 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 Oppression first, then envy, then greed. Verses 7 and 8. Again, I saw meaningless under the sun, or hevel. There was a man all alone. He had neither brother or son. There was no end to his toil. Yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. The love of money is so subtle. And those most Seduced by it are the ones who think they are seduced by it the least, even in a church, even in leadership. By the way, let me just emphasize because sometimes Ecclesiastes gets a bad rap or it's misunderstood. So maybe just be clear here, as I have been. Solomon, young people hear this especially. Solomon is not anti-pleasure. This is not a rant against anything enjoyable in life. That would be a misunderstanding of what Solomon is saying. This is not a rant against bacon. This is not a rant against nachos and ice cream and bacon-covered scallops and bacon-covered shrimp. I like bacon, and it's not a rant against uh, you know warm baths and sunsets and good friends and campfires. That that is not his point. He's not against joy, enjoying good food, good fellowship, and good friends. That's not his point. Here's what he's warning us about. Young people, hear this. Ready? You, you, You tracking here? Solomon is warning us about making good things ultimate things. That's where he says you'll get disillusioned. When you take God's gifts, most of the things he mentions are God's gifts, and pervert them and twist them and elevate them and make those ultimate, that's when you start sinking into despair because they're hevel. There's nothing wrong with enjoying them, but realize they're momentary, they're vapor, they're smoke, and they'll disappear quickly. And if you're grabbing onto them, there's nothing there, ultimately. And Solomon does actually encourage us to enjoy God's good gifts, whether it's sports or food or sex or shopping or leisure or study or friendships or books or whatever, But his point is, enjoyment under the sun is not going to happen if we're not fearing God above the sun. And to make that case, look at chapter 5, verses 18 and 19. He says this explicitly. Chapter 5, just turn over, chapter 5, verses 18 and 19. He's very clear. He's not anti-pleasure. This is not a screed. Ecclesiastes is not some kind of tirade against all pleasure. That's not his point. And here's case in point. This is what I observed, chapter 5, verse 18. I have observed, to, this is what I observed to be good. It is appropriate for a person to eat, drink, and find satisfaction in their toilsome labor under the sun during the few days of life God has given them. This is their lot. Look at verse 19. What's it say? Moreover, when God gives someone wealth and possessions and the ability to enjoy them, to accept their lot and be happy in their toil." What's the text say? What's the next phrase? This is a gift from God. This is a gift from God. It's okay to enjoy bacon in moderation, as long as I don't worship bacon. It's okay to enjoy friendships and campfires and nachos and whatever it is you enjoy. As long as I do it in moderation and I don't look to it for ultimate lasting satisfaction, that's when it's all going to fall apart. and you're going, to, you're going to realize you're just grasping for smoke and mist and vapor, and it's not there. That's why so many people then sink into despair. So again, his point is enjoyment under the sun can only be found by fearing God above the sun. What's the next thing he sees? Isolation. Oppression first, then envy, then greed, now isolation, verses 9 to 12. Come back to chapter 4, verses 9 to 12. Two are better than one because they have a good return in their labor. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up. But pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. That, by the way, is a very important reason to be involved in a gospel-preaching church. Just in a body of people who take care of you when life falls apart, when you're hurting, when you have needs. Our flock here is tremendous about doing that, by the way. It's such a joy to watch you got all everybody take care of everybody. So last year, Becky and I, a year ago, March, we had COVID, pretty bad. And we were over. In fact, my parents visited the day I was diagnosed, and they'd already had it, so they're like, whatever, you know, we're in our mid 80s, doesn't matter. So they just took care of us, but then they were they were shocked, surprised, encouraged how many people just kept ministering to us. So it got to the point where my dad kept going, what are we getting for dinner tonight? <laughs> he thought this was a, 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 a festival here. It was, and it was just a great testimony to our church. And I, we've, we've watched that take place on so many levels with, all of you, with a lot of you. And it's just been a joy. That's what's one of the benefits, is taking, have someone take care of you when you fall down. If either of them falls... One can help the other up, but pity someone who falls and no one is there. Also, if two lie down, they will keep warm. How can one keep warm uh, alone? So, the next one is isolation, especially especially this whole concept of three chords that's emphasizing the need for meaningful relationship. Now, the opposite folly of meaningful biblical community would be Uh, complete isolation, the hermit, that's one end of the spectrum, isolation, insulation, we might say. The other end of the spectrum that would be unhealthy are unbiblical relationships, unhealthy relationships, both. So he's hitting isolation here, but then the other end of the folly is unhealthy or unbiblical relationships that can go toxic. And hence you have many warnings in the Bible, hear this young people, about the danger of choosing friends poorly. Now, the Bible sends a twofold message. One, any born again Christian should be ready to minister to anybody God brings along their path. That's key. Having said that, the Bible is equally emphatic, especially in Proverbs. We need to be very careful who we put as an inner ring friend because friends are like the flu their attitudes are contagious, <laughs> and their behavior is contagious. And so there's many warnings about who we allow as those few close people around us to be very careful in that. That's the opposite. And that especially extends, in the Bible, to those we choose to marry. The Bible is very clear. A true born-again Christian is only to marry a true born-again Christian. So when we look at issues like courtship and dating and getting married, the Bible is very clear. Be very careful who you give your heart to. Be very careful. Make sure you're viewing This is God views it, and there are many warnings about the danger of a believer walking with an unbeliever towards marriage, and especially getting married. There's a lot of ink spent on that one in the Scriptures. So oppression, envy, greed, isolation. The next thing you see is just foolishness, verse 13, better a poor but wise youth than an old but foolish king who no longer knows how to heed a warning. And then the last thing he observes, he sees, is empty religion. This would be chapter 5, the first six verses. Solomon looked around and he saw the kind of religion God hates. Did you know there is a kind of religion God hates? And here he identifies its counterfeit offerings, counterfeit prayers, counterfeit vows. And it's a reminder that just being religious is no guarantee of being accepted by God. It actually may heighten your damnation if it's superficial. Look at verses 1 to 5. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Go near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools who do not know what, that they're doing wrong. So you can be going through the motions and not be worshiping God. Do not be quick with your mouth. Do not be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God. God is in heaven and you are on earth, so let your words be few. A dream comes when there are many cares and many words mark the speech of a fool. When you make a vow to God, do not delay to fulfill it. He has no pleasure in fools. Fulfill your vow. It is better not to make a vow than to make one and not fulfill it. And He says, do not let your mouth lead you Into sin, empty religion. So he sees oppression, he sees envy, he sees greed, he sees isolation, he sees foolishness, and he sees empty religion. No wonder his bleakness and existential despair is just deepening as he looks at all of this around him with no reference to God, leaving God out of the picture. Bottom line, is that the more Solomon is trying to interpret things around him without any reference to God, the more he's just sinking into despair. Why? Because life is hevel. It's temporary. It's fleeting. It's momentary. I grasp onto this and I grasp onto that, thinking, oh, that will provide lasting joy. Oh, that next shopping adventure, that's going to give me satisfaction. Oh, hanging out with that group of people, grabbing onto that pleasure, that'll be the thing that really brings me lasting significance and it all poofs gone. And when it disappears and we still aren't thinking of God, that's when we sink into despair. And sadly that is increasingly where many are in our culture today. The depression rate, the suicide rate continues to climb in western culture. According to the CDC, the suicide rate of those ages 10 to 24 the number of you are here today in that age range. The suicide rate in the age group 10 to 24 between 2008 and 2007 and 2018 has increased 60 percent. Six, zero percent. That is a national emergency. That is a national emergency when the suicide rate has increased 60% from our 10 to 24-year-olds in just over a decade. According to a study at the University of Michigan I was looking at this week, suicide is, depending on their data, is either number one or number two leading cause death of college students today in our nation. And the overall suicide rate is the highest it has been since the Great Depression in the 1930s. This is national emergency, friends. Recently on our sabbatical, Becky and I were driving through rural Tennessee, middle of nowhere, beautiful, it's on this kind of scenic two-lane highway, and all of a sudden in the rearview mirror. All these emergency vehicles, one at a time, were kind of showing up and then passing and showing up and then passing us and showing up and passing. It's like, where in the world? There's nothing out here. Where are they going? And then we rounded a bend and we came to this huge expanse bridge across the valley. It was gore, very scenic and beautiful. But to our horror, we realized as we came around the bend, kind of arriving at the same moment all these emergency vehicles were pulling up and we're arriving at the same exact moment, that someone had just jumped off the bridge to commit suicide. We were showing up right as it had happened. I have done funerals for several suicides during my ministry. They are tragic. They are not easy funerals to do, especially if it was a violent suicide. But Becky and I have I've never arrived at like the moment right after suicide took place as the first responders are even showing up, and the individual is still there. And so, it was incredibly disturbing. and It just drove home that this is a crisis in our culture. Now, to give you a little bit of help along this line, there's a newer book out by Matthew Sleeth. Uh, He's a physician, Dr. Matthew Sleeth, S-L-E-E-T-H, He's a Christian medical doctor. title of the book is Hope Always, How to Be a Force for Life in a Culture of Suicide. It's a very good book. He says a major premise of this book is that the current epidemic of suicide and depression, I think the book came out in the last two or three years. The major premise of this book is that the current epidemic of suicide and depression will only get worse If the role of God, faith, and belief is not moved to the forefront of our discussion for treatment plans. Amen. He goes on to be very critical of a 61-page report on suicide put out by the CDC that leaves out any mention of God or faith. And he said the reason is it ignores the most important ingredient in finding true hope. In his view as a physician, a Christian physician. But I would encourage you, that book, and if you are struggling at all with thoughts of suicide or know somebody that is, and odds are high, we all know somebody that's toying with it or thinking about it, and maybe you are yourself, get help. There are many in this church who would be more than willing to drop everything and talk with you. And get this book. Be prepared because it is an epidemic and it is a crisis and Ecclesiastes points right to the reason. We have become increasingly a a culture obsessed with what's going on here while ignoring the God above the sun. That leads lastly to finding hope above the sun to the last verse. After making all these depressing, existentially despairing, dark observations about life, after making observations about what he saw under the sun and the insanity of life under the sun, Solomon now reminds us the only path to hope, the only path to salvation is the God above the sun and fearing Him, fearing the God above the sun. Look at 5 verse 7. He doesn't take many words to say this. He says it pretty easily. Chapter 5 verse 7. He says, and I'm just going to read the last phrase, therefore fear God. The whole verse isn't even very much. Much dreaming, many words are meaningless, or hevel, (laughs) therefore fear God. The only path to finding hope in life, young people, the only path to finding hope, joy, stability, wholeness, lasting joy and satisfaction is in fearing the God above the sun. Unless you think that this is some kind of just a minor theme in the Bible, it is not. I spent some time this week doing my own Bible study on the fear of God. John Bunyan, by the way, the one who wrote Pilgrim's Progress, wrote one of his he wrote almost sixty books. A lot of you don't know that. And one of his best selling books was just called The Fear of God. Here's a few of the verses I found. I would just encourage you to listen if you want to go back. and This, is, uh, this will be online. You can listen to this online. But just uh, to help get a, a little bit of the force of Scripture on this subject and how common it is, just hear some of the verses I, I dug up. Deuteronomy 10.12 What does the Lord re- your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God and to walk in all of His ways? Joshua four twenty four speaks of God parting the Red Sea, so that we might always fear the Lord your God. Psalm 33.8, three eight, let all the earth fear the Lord. Psalm thirty four nine, fear the Lord, you His saints. Those who fear Him have no lack. Proverbs one seven, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Proverbs 16.6, through the fear of the Lord, a man avoids evil. Proverbs 19.23, the fear of the Lord leads to life. Young people, do you hear that? The fear of the Lord leads to life. How about this one? Isaiah 8.13, the Lord Almighty is the one you are to regard as holy. He is the one you are to fear. He is the one you are to dread. Or Matthew 28, where Jesus Himself talks about fear of God. Jesus says, Matthew 10, 28, Do not fear those who kill your body, but cannot kill your soul. Rather, fear Him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. This is a big theme in Scripture, fearing God. And Solomon comes back to it. So, I want to land the plane here today, so to speak, this way. If fearing God is so central to being joyful in life, if fearing God is so critical to finding lasting satisfaction and purpose and meaning in life, what exactly then does it mean? Tell us, preacher, what does it mean? So I want to close this morning. This will serve as our summons. Here is three things biblically that fearing God means. This itself could be a sermon. This itself could be a very rich Bible study by looking at what the Bible means about fearing God. Number one, to fear God biblically means to know that He is the good and great judge of all the earth fear God biblically means to know that He is the good and great judge of all the earth. A couple months ago in November, uh, The Economist, The Economist is a periodical in London. It's one of the most influential periodicals in the world. Ran an article by a British reporter. Her name was Catherine Nixie. The title of the article was called "Nearer My God to Me." It was kind of a look into 20, she was kind of looking into 2022 talking about religious trends in Western culture, but especially in the U.K. and Britain. The subtitle of the article was this: "Why God is becoming more liberal." Now, God is not becoming more liberal or more conservative. God does not change. That's not the point of the article. What she's really talking about is why our clergy... And increasingly denominations in the UK and in Western culture becoming more liberal. And she has a fascinating observation. There's no indication that she's a believer of any kind as she writes the article. But she's insightful. She writes this about viewing God as a judge and viewing time as moving towards a day of judgment. Quote, smiting, that is S-M-I-T-I-N-G. Smiting used to be so simple, God smote and the people trembled and they sometimes died. According to the Old Testament, He smote the rebellious Israelites, tens of thousands died. He he smote the firstborn Egyptians and they died. and And He smote the Philistines and they got hemorrhoids. The Sodomites suffered a particularly striking smiting. And then she gets right to the point when she says this. She says, few in Britain today are celebrating a smitey almighty. That's her kind of her catchy way of saying, we don't want a God of judgment anymore. That's done. That's, that's, that's the old days. Fewer, fewer people in Britain, according to all polls, actually believe in God. Attendance in the Church of England has plummeted. Fewer, fewer even believe in God or believe in divine revelation, let alone in God who judges sin and will punish sinners. And yet, one of the most common themes of the Bible is that all people one day will stand before God. Young people, old people, everybody else people, you're going to stand before God. I will stand before God someday because He has authority over all of us in His kingdom. To fear God is to see Him as the good and great judge, the great king That holds the power of life and death. Genesis 18.25, will not the judge of the earth do what is right? Hebrews 10.31, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. To fear God is to see Him as the great and good judge. Secondly, to fear God is to repent and believe in His only Son. That's very clear. John chapter 3, for God so loved the world, He gave His only Son. Whoever believes in Him will not perish but have everlasting life. In John 14, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Or in Mark 1.15, the kingdom of God has come near, repent and believe the good news. So the Bible is clear. A second thing it means to fear God is fearing God means surrendering to His one and only begotten Son by repenting and turning from our sin and believing in Him and then following Him in obedience. Third and final thing it means to fear God is obedience. There is a constant connection between fearing God and obeying His commands. Constant. In all areas. With our money, in sexual purity, in baptism, in our relationships, on in our responses to tragedy and suffering and disappointment and betrayal in life. All areas obeying Him. For instance, Deuteronomy 10.12 Listen to the connection between fearing God and obedience. What does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God and to walk in all His ways? There's always that direct connection between the two. I want to end in, at the end of uh, Ecclesiastes, where we'll turn quite frequently, chapter 12, the last two verses. I hope you're memorizing them. I am, I have, and I keep reciting themselves, them to myself throughout the week. Ecclesiastes 12 13 and 14. Be memorizing these. Young people, I challenge you, be memorizing these. You, can, you could not go wrong memorizing these two and burning them into the frontal lobes of your brain. Now all has been heard. Here's the conclusion of the matter. Now notice the connection fearing God and obedience. Fear God and keep some of His commandments. Is that what the Bible says? No. Yes, I heard it over here. Fear God and keep His commandments. The one who says, I know God, but is not obeying Him, John says, is a liar. People sit in church all the time, in churches, claim to be Christians, claim to be followers of Christ, hold their Bibles, love to listen to sermons, and, do that, and they're not obeying God. And John says they're liars. This is the duty of all mankind because God will bring into deed every judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it's good or evil. I close with this gospel promise from the gospel of John. Hear this, saints of God, John 14, 21, about obedience and the promise that comes to those who are hungry for obedience. Whoever has my commands and is keeping them is the one who loves me, and the one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and hear this, and I will love them and show myself to them. That is gospel hope for those who fear God and obey Him. Lord, thank you for this book that Ecclesiastes announces and that Solomon wrote and that is so unique in the canon of Scripture. As we stand to sing, I pray for those who don't know Christ that today might be the day they cross over from death to life and repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray for those who've been faking it, who've been professing Christians but not possessing Christians, have not really been born again, that you would bring them to saving faith. And I pray for those who are walking in obedience and fearing God here today, that you would strengthen them and fill them with joy on a new Sabbath. Thank you for Solomon. And for Jesus and the gift and hope of eternal life in the God above the Son. In his name, amen.